That can be found on page 824 in the Black Bibles. Our study through Matthew has brought us to chapter 19, and verse 1 of our text alerts us that we're entering a new section in Matthew's gospel. Um, Matthew has that phrase, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And this is now the fourth time that he, we've seen that phrase in the, the gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew's standard expression for concluding a long teaching block from Jesus and then transitioning us into a, a new narrative section. And that's exactly what we've had, right? All of chapter 18 was, was um, this, this long discourse from Jesus teaching uh, us of what it's like to be the family of God living together. And now we're, we're moving into a narrative section where there will certainly be more teaching as well. So it is a transition not only in uh, the flow there, but also geographically we're entering a new section of the story here. And, and you see that there in, in, what is it, verse 2, I believe. In verse 1, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed from there. Jesus and, and his disciples have spent most of their time, most of his public ministry, up ministering in, in the northern part of Galilee, right? They've ventured out a, a few different times, but by and large, they've been in Galilee. Well, now that is changing. Here in chapter 19, they leave Galilee. Why? Because they are headed to Jerusalem. If you're familiar with Luke's gospel, <clears throat> he phrases it this way. Uh, Jesus set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And that's the part of the story we're in now where uh, Jesus' public ministry is, is kind of coming to a close and now he's, he's, you know, the disciples, by God's grace, have recognized that he's the Messiah. He's going to continue to teach them why he's come. And, but at, he's going to teach them as they're headed for Jerusalem. He's going toward Jerusalem so that he can lay down his life as a sacrifice for many. Right? And so Jesus and his disciples will not return to Galilee until Matthew, the very end of the gospel, Matthew 28, 16, after Christ's resurrection. So this is kind of a, kind of a big turning point for us, right? This morning our text is Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. And I'd ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's word. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Obviously, our text today is on marriage and divorce. Right? And what a... As I said in the prayer, what a timely topic, marriage. There's so much confusion and disagreement about marriage today. The redefinition of marriage and, and no-fault divorce has undermined what used to be a sacred foundational relationship in society. And, and because of that, uh, many in our culture, 
right? I'm sure you've noticed this. Many in, in, our, in today's culture choose instead to live together or to simply just hook up, believing that marriage is no longer useful. Like, like marriage is some worn-out relic from a bygone era. But God's Word tells us that marriage is not obsolete and that marriage is not up for redefinition. Marriage is part of God's original creation design, and it is good. God created marriage for human flourishing. God created marriage to be a display of his glory. Marriage is vital to society, and it will continue to be vital to society until Christ returns. God is the author of marriage, so he alone defines what marriage is and how it is to work And our passage today will do just that for us. So we we all need this teaching today. No matter if we're married, single, divorced, remarried, we all need this today. We need to know God's intention for marriage so that we can glorify God in our marriages, so that we can encourage others in their marriages, so that we can teach God's design for marriage to others. And as important as marriage is, Our text today will also remind us that every believer can bring glory to God whether they are married or single. In fact, God gifts gifts some believers with singleness so that they can be undistracted and fully devoted to serving God's kingdom. So let's go through the text. We're going to jump right into verse 3 where um, the, the specific occasion begins, right? Verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the Pharisees, right, those were the religious leaders, the rulers of the day, but remember they were by and large the enemies of Jesus as well. And, and so they're asking a question to Jesus about divorce, but notice that their motives are not pure, right? Did you see what verse 3 said? They were, they're testing Jesus, In that day, there was a lot of debate on the issue of marriage and divorce, right? We can relate. And and the Pharisees are hoping that Jesus' answer to their question, right? It's kind of like they're laying a trap for him. They're hoping that however Jesus answers, that, that his answer will be controversial and that they can use his answer to turn people against him. So they're testing him. Look again at their question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Now they're, they're using the very uh, catchphrase of the day because in their culture there were two main schools of thought about this. We've, we've, we've talked about this before. There were two main rabbinical schools, Hillel and Shammai. The school of Shammai took the more conservative view. They taught that a man could divorce his wife for adultery only. But at the time of Jesus, that school was in the minority. So the predominant view was the more liberal view, the school of Hillel. They taught that a man could divorce his wife for any cause. And their position came from them completely misinterpreting and misapplying a text in Deuteronomy 24 that we'll look at later. And so um, that was the predominant view. And, it, and in that view justified rampant divorce, the, the, that a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, right? And there's documentation of this, of just how rampant it was. You know, if he just got tired of his wife or if he felt like his wife was no longer respecting him or even if she, you know, ruined a meal or something, he, he could divorce her. If he found someone else that he thought was more attractive or, or better suited for him, he could just come up with any lame reason he wanted to and divorce his wife and marry this new woman. And again, many of the Jews of Jesus' day gravitated to that position. They gravitated to the school of Hillel. And so records show us that divorce was rampant in the first century, just like it is today. So here in verse 3, when the Pharisees ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're actually quoting or referencing Hillel's position. Again, the Pharisees are testing Jesus. How's he going to answer this? Is he going to come down on the, is he going to hold to the less popular conservative view? 
And if he does, hopefully they can turn a lot of people against him. But not only that, maybe they can even get him in trouble with Herod. Right? As they're, they're down in territory where Herod reigns now. And remember... Um, John the Baptist's position <laughs> with, with Herod, right? He, he called out King Herod on what he was doing and saying, what, what you're doing is not right. You, you've divorced your, your wife. You've married your brother's wife. You're committing adultery. It's not right. And that landed him in jail. And ultimately, um, he was beheaded. So, you know, who knows? The Pharisees might have been hoping a similar thing would happen to Jesus. But look at how Jesus responds. <laughs> Just look at the way he begins his answer in verse 4. Have you not read? Wow, he's really sticking it to him right at the beginning, right? Because remember, who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. They were the religious experts. They were the biblical scholars. They were the teachers. And he's saying, guys, have you not even read your Bibles? And then what does Jesus do? He takes them to Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is like, you guys are asking the wrong question. You're, you're not even starting in the right place. You're already asking, well, when can we divorce and what are the grounds and, and you know, and he's like, you need to go back to the very beginning and look at what was God's design, his original design and purpose for marriage. Before we even talk about the possibility of divorce, let's discuss what marriage really is. And so Jesus says to understand marriage, to understand God's design for marriage, look at creation. Right? And again, how, how we need that message today as well. When God created humans, he made them male and female, Jesus says. And he's referencing Genesis 1.27. He made them male and female. God created a man and a woman. Gender is not a, what do they say, a societal construct. It's part of creation. We're made male and female. God made a particular man, Adam. He made a particular woman, Eve. And then he brought them together in marriage in Genesis chapter 2. The passage Gare read for us earlier. One man, one woman. And that is instructive about marriage, isn't it? God didn't create Adam and then create three or four women to be married to Adam. No, he created a one-to-one -one ratio to show that marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman. And God brought Adam and Eve together there uh, in that first marriage ceremony. It's really beautiful if you read Genesis 2 and you think about it. It's, it's like, um, you know, Adam has, God had Adam to name the, the animals, right? And that was to, you know, him exercising dominion, being in the image of God. But it also, was also to show him, hey, there's no suitable helper for you. And then he has Adam uh, fall into a deep sleep, takes his rib, forms Eve from that rib, right? And then it's, it's like a marriage ceremony where God is walking Eve down the aisle, presenting Eve to Adam, her husband. It's beautiful. And so here in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes from that very passage, he quotes from, he's already referenced Genesis 127 saying God made them male and female in the beginning, right? And then he um, goes ahead and quotes from Genesis 224 in verse 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So again, he's saying, have you not read about the creation account, how God created the male and female and then he said... He brought them together and he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. Adam and Eve were the first marriage and their union became the pattern for all marriages to come. 
where a man and a woman both leave their parents and are joined together in a lifelong exclusive relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship where the husband and wife make promises to each other before God and, of course, before other witnesses as well. And notice the important phrase, the husband and the wife become one flesh. Marriage takes two people and makes them one. And certainly sexual intimacy is is an expression of that. It's a picture of this and it's to be enjoyed only within the marriage relationship. But this one flesh union involves far more than just sexual intimacy. There's to be a relational intimacy. Where the husband and the wife are sharing their lives together. Again, marriage was for companionship as well. And in, in fact, the coming together physically is meant to be the picture and and the pinnacle of this oneness of life. I read this week one author called uh, marriage a a covenant of companionship. And again, in Genesis 2, that point is made very clear, like I said, that Eve alone was uniquely suited to be Adam's companion and that he needed a companion, right? When you read through Genesis 1, the creation account, God's doing all these things and, and it is good, it is good, it is good, this is good, this is good. And then you, you get to man, it is not good that man is alone. He needs a companion. And then he created Eve. So when a man and woman marry, they are no longer two, but they become one flesh. They are promising to share their lives together. They're no longer just thinking about, well, what are my needs and what are my desires, right? And how does this affect me? No, no, <laughs> right? And that's, what, that's that constant lifelong sanctification that we have to die to self and, and, and realize, I need to consider my spouse, right? It's no longer just about me. Now it's about him or her, right? And, and it's about us together and how does this affect us as a family? They're one flesh, now, now husband is to be concerned about his wife's needs and desires, and likewise a wife her husband's needs. Jesus reiterates this in verse 6. Right? I mean, he's really hammering this point home. He's already quoted Genesis 2.24, saying the two become one flesh, but then he restates it in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Anybody ever heard that in a marriage ceremony? Right? That's from the Bible, (laughs) right? Jesus says, notice, again, we're talking about what is marriage. This is so important for us to understand. That marriage is created and designed by God. Not, Not society, not government. Jesus says, God has joined a husband and a wife together. That marriage, again, is established by God. It's not something that our society came up with. No, God designed it. He established it. So he alone defines what it is. And God has designed marriage to be a lifelong commitment of one man and one woman. When a man and woman are married, they make vows before God. And God joins them together in what is to be this lifelong union. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The verb hold fast describes a strong bond. God joins them together in a covenant of marriage. And so Jesus says in verse 6, what God has joined together, man is not to separate through divorce. God designed marriage to be a lifelong bond, a lifelong commitment. So notice what Jesus has done, right? The Pharisees came asking him about divorce. <laughs> but instead of him talking about, okay, well, yeah, divorce is allowed here and here, but, but not there. And No, he says, well, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's look at God's design. Let's start with what marriage is and, and how God designed it to be. And that's going to nip most of your questions and most of your um, possibilities for divorce in the butt and nip them in the bud right but the Pharisees are not going to drop this look at verse 7 
They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He, Jesus, said to them, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What do you notice about that exchange? Words matter, don't they? <laughs> you guys, some of you are smiling, you know the words I'm talking about. The Pharisees made it sound like Moses commanded them to give a certificate of divorce. But Jesus is not going to have that. He says in verse 8, it's because of, your hardness, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, again, back to creation, from the beginning it was not so. So he's not going to let them get away with saying Moses commanded. Moses did not command divorce because divorce was never God's intention. Divorce came about because of man's hardness of heart. Divorce came about because of sin. Sin destroys and wrecks things. Again, God ordained marriage to be a lifelong commitment, a lifelong covenant. Divorce was not in God's plan for marriage. Matter of fact, Malachi 2.16, there God says, I hate divorce. But what Jesus is explaining is that divorce and the need for a process, the need for some instruction on it, came about because of man's sin, because of man's hardness of heart. And so God, through Moses, in this passage they're referencing, Deuteronomy 24, he's not commanding it, he's merely regulating how it should take place. So we've, we've referenced it several times. I'd ask you to please turn to Deuteronomy 24, just so we can know what they're talking about here. That's back in page 165, the fifth book in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll come back, of course, to Matthew 19. Starts right down there on the bottom of page 165. Let's just look at verses 1 through 4. This is when Moses is giving the law to the nation of, to the second generation of Israelites there before they enter the promised land. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, like I said earlier, in Jesus' day, um, the, the, the religious teachers, the rabbis, the school of Hillel had taken that passage and misapplied it in order to justify the rampant divorce Deuteronomy 24, again, was not commanding divorce. Rather, it was a policy to limit divorce and to protect women specifically. What, what, that, what that text there, what that law is saying is rather than the man being able to divorce the woman at a moment's notice, leave her high and dry, he has to go through this process of getting a certificate of divorce. And that was for the woman's protection. Because in their culture, of course, there was no alimony. Uh, it was very difficult for a woman to support herself and, and kids especially on her own. She's, she was often dependent on a husband to support her. And so that certificate, that divorce certificate, allowed the woman, it freed her up to legally remarry, and it prevented the first husband from taking advantage of her. And, and again, you look through that and you can kind of understand maybe some of the details there. How the, the first husband's not allowed to just go in and out of the marriage and, and no. This, so this was all to protect the woman emotionally and, and, and financially and, and, and enable her to, to be provided for. But again, Christ's point is the intention of Deuteronomy 24 was not to make divorce acceptable, certainly not to command it. Rather, it was actually to be a deterrent to divorce. And if, if divorce is going to take place, it was to provide a safeguard for the women who are being taken or, or who would be taken advantage of. But they had twisted it to, 
to satisfy their own evil desires. They had taken verse 1 and, and said, oh, see, that's talking about some indecency in her, right? When it says when a man takes, takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And they took that and just did some gymnastics and got it to mean any cause. But the only grounds there that Deuteronomy 24 even discusses is this word indecency, which means the term is literally nakedness. It means sexual immorality. It's primarily referring to adultery. It could also include other gross sexual sins. And so those are the, those are the only allowances you can really find in Deuteronomy 24 for one to divorce his wife. Which is why then, back to Matthew 19, Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another and commits adultery. So he, he's, what he's saying is right in line with Deuteronomy 24. He's using that important phrase, I say to you. We've seen him do that in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is speaking authoritatively. Uh, he, he's he's uh, correcting the, the wrong teaching that was happening among the, the religious leaders. And he says, this is what's true. This is what the Bible says. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he's saying, God does not allow you to divorce your wife for any reason, as was the predominant view. He says, that's not right. God intended marriage to be forever. In fact, he says, if you divorce your wife except on this ground of sexual immorality, you commit adultery when you remarry. He's saying if the divorce is not on the biblical grounds of sexual immorality, then the divorce is sinful, and so to marry another is committing adultery. Now that word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It can refer to adultery, prostitution, incest, or fornication. And since the Bible also would prohibit homosexuality and bestiality, those would also fall under porneia. So Jesus says sexual immorality is the one legitimate condition for divorce. Again, he's not saying divorce is commanded in cases of sexual immorality, but it is allowed. And then later, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, will give us another um, exception, another grounds for divorce desertion or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse so those are the two explicit grounds for divorce that the bible teaches and so divorce in those cases is allowed it is biblical and so to remarry in those cases would not be committing adultery again divorce is never god's plan it was not his design it is not ideal but the reality is we live in a fallen world and sin has tainted and, and messed up good things like marriage. And so the exceptions are there to help those who are sinned against. So again, Jesus is teaching what marriage is, how sacred marriage is to be, the, the very limited um, cases or exceptions where divorce is allowed, and I realize even saying those two uh, grounds, those can raise lots of questions, right? Well, what constitutes sexual immorality today? Well, what constitutes abandonment today? And again, those are fair questions. And, it, and it, um, each case has to be handled on a case-by-case basis because because. Again, I, I know I keep saying this, but I'm just trying to make this point. God creates things good, and God's way is actually pretty simple, isn't it? But what sin does is sin just makes everything very complicated and messy and, and difficult, and you're trying to pick, unravel things and put together pieces, and so it has to be handled with, with great dependence on the Lord and care. And so... Again, as I've read and, and studied these things, the predominant um, counsel that I pass on to you now is, 
is to seek counsel whenever, if you ever find yourself trying to navigate one of these areas. It's so important to seek godly biblical counsel in order to help people navigate difficult situations. And so I just, it's an appropriate time for me to open that up and say if you need help, if you need help in your marriage, please come and get help. Come talk to the elders. Talk to, talk to Leanne. That's, that's why we're here, to provide help and biblical counsel, to open up God's word together. It's very important to not suffer alone. By God's grace, God gives us elders, he gives us counselors, he gives us spiritual leaders to, to help, to protect. And we believe God is powerful and that he can, he can do mighty things through his word. He can use the body of Christ, he can use his word, he can use his spirit to bring comfort, to bring repentance, to bring forgiveness, to bring guidance, to bring healing. And even situations that involve legitimate grounds for divorce, those are still difficult matters and they need to be handled very carefully and on a case-by-case basis. So, um, there are exceptions. But Jesus is making the point that God's heart for marriage is to be a lifelong commitment. So again, if you're in a difficult marriage, I would ask you to please get help. Reach out to the body of Christ so that people can help you and provide counsel. If you're in an abusive relationship, you you definitely need help and protection right away. Don't, Don't suffer in silence. Don't suffer alone for that. If you're in a difficult marriage, get help and trust. Believe God to do mighty things through his word, that God can change you and your spouse. Christ's teaching has been pretty clear, and I know even as we do this, some are faced with the, the reality that perhaps your divorce and remarriage was not on biblical grounds, and so what do you do about that, right? And the Bible would say, um, you, you confess it, you, you own it. You, you would, it, by God's grace, admit that it was sin, Again, if it was on unbiblical grounds and, and that you shouldn't have gotten a divorce, but then you, you run to the cross, you cling to Christ, and you're reminded of the gospel that there's forgiveness in Christ. Divorce is, and remarriage is, and, you know, an unbiblical remarriage is not the unforgivable sin, praise God, right? There's forgiveness in Christ. I again share some gospel verses with you. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 1.18 says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so God, there's, God forgives. And, and like we talked about last week, there's still natural consequences that you have to deal with, right, whenever there's forgiveness involved. But God forgives. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're cleansed. He's removed your transgressions from you. And so now God calls you to stay faithful in the marriage that you're in. Stay faithful to your spouse. Seek, seek to make your marriage now one that pictures the gospel. God can be glorified through your marriage as together you pursue Christ. And God will give you grace to deal with the whatever challenges there are from from the divorce God is still at work and that's what's so beautiful about the Lord is that he works even through our our failings he's sovereign over all sin and he's even through that he's he's bringing beauty out of the ashes he's he's he restores the years that the locusts have eaten and God uses even even painful things even sinful choices, God uses those to, to sanctify us and draw us closer to him. So, there, there's a lot to, to learn about this, right? 
Uh, like I said, this is a very timely message, not only for those who are married, but for those who are still single. And that's actually where our text goes now. Look at verse 10. <laughs> I mean, the disciples, you know, they've, they've heard Jesus' response to this. Jesus has, has planted his flag and says, said where he stands on this. He's in the minority view. He's in the conservative view. He's going countercultural. The, the disciples are, are trying to wrap their mind around what Jesus has just said. They're wrapping their mind around the, the um, commitment that marriage is. They're understanding Jesus is saying, hey, God's intention is for your marriage to be for a lifetime. And so look at what they say in verse 10. Again, I don't, you know, we wish we could see how they say this, you know. Are they just being cynical? Are they making a joke? Or, but they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Having heard Jesus refute the cultural position of easy divorce, the disciples make what I think is a somewhat cynical, but also kind of an exasperated comment it's better not to even marry, right? Rather than to find myself saddled with a marriage from which I cannot escape. I kind of think that's what they were thinking. And it's really interesting the way Jesus replies to them. There's lots of ways he could have gone with that, right? And things that would have been true. No, 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 God, God is good. God will help you. You know, marriage is beautiful. That's kind of some of the things I've been saying, right? And, and that's true. But he kind of goes a different direction here in verse 11. It's interesting. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, before we move on, let's understand what is this saying, He's pointing back to what they have just said in verse 10. Okay? Saying, you guys have made this comment, hey, it's better not to marry. He says not everyone can receive that. Not everyone is going to be able to, to say that with the, <laughs> the gusto that you're saying it, right? Not everyone's going to land there. But only those to whom it is given. And then he says, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have, been who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus doesn't soften what he's just said about God's design for lifelong commitment and marriage. He's saying, yes, for some it is better for them not to marry, if that is what God has called them to do. And I know this is kind of an odd verse to us, verse 12, but Jesus uses the stark language of a eunuch to describe those who do not marry because marriage was so prevalent in their culture that it's kind of like you were either married or or you were a eunuch. I mean, obviously, you know, there were older widows and things. And, but, I mean, that was just kind of how it was. And so I think that's why Jesus is just using that term to describe people who find themselves, for one reason or another, not married. <laughs> He's saying the only ones who didn't marry were, typically, were eunuchs. Those without the capacity for sexual relations. And then Jesus breaks it down. There's three kinds of eunuchs. There's those who are born that way. They're born with some kind of physical defect and to where they're not able for sexual relations. There are those who are castrated by another, which again was a practice they would have been familiar with and it was done in ancient history, right? Um, men who were put, you know, in charge of, of, of an of, the, of a household and going to be around the, the powerful man's wife or whatever, or, or men who were put in charge of a harem, or a king's harem, right? That's what they did, so that there was no uh, temptation, right? <laughs> but then Jesus describes a third type of person, those who have made themselves eunuchs. 
Now again, he's not talking about someone physically doing that to themselves. He's talking about those who have made the decision not to marry. They, as a matter of fact, some English translations say those who have renounced marriage. They've chosen a life of singleness. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They've chosen a life of singleness so that they can be wholly devoted to God and his kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying is not everyone is wired that way. Not every, you guys just made the statement, hey, it's better not to even marry, right? And he's saying, well, yeah, you know, in a way you're kind of right because then you can be wholly devoted to the kingdom, but not everyone is able to receive that. Not everyone's wired that way. There, there's, there's many people who strongly desire the companionship. They desire the sexual intimacy. But God gifts others with the ability to remain single while still staying pure and content in the Lord. Now, many of you know there's a, there's a place in the, in the Bible that where this is talked about even probably more clearly, right, without the eunuch language. <laughs> and that's Paul, right, in 1 Corinthians 7. I won't take the time to turn there, but the passage is in your notes there. There in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul explains that, hey, being single is a blessing, Because then you have more time to serve the Lord. Because you're free from the responsibilities of marriage and family. And so, you know, he's saying, I wish more people could be like me. Because Paul was single at that time. Jesus was single, right? And so, I hope today you kind of see the whole picture. Marriage is a blessing. And it's an opportunity to bring glory to God. Children are a blessing from the Lord. The Bible's clear about that. But if God enables you... To be content and pure as a single person, then the Bible says, devote yourself to serving the Lord. Praise God, be a good steward of that season in your life. And pursue Christ and his kingdom with all your might. And I know we have a lot of singles in here now. And again, it's not that you have to declare, I'm going to be single forever, right? I mean, we don't know. God changes desires and, you know, you may feel like he's called you to be single, but you later... You may feel differently, right? But what I would just encourage singles today is to be good stewards of this season of your life. Maybe you know you want to be married. You desire that, and, but you get, you're waiting on the Lord, right? Of course. But be a good steward of it. Devote yourself now to, to Christ and his kingdom. You, it's true we never feel like we, I mean, whatever season of life we're in, we feel like it's, it's super hard, and I understand that. But if you're single, you'll never have more time than you do now to serve the Lord, right? Wow, serve the Lord. Develop godly habits of spending time with God and his word, of, of, of being involved in the life of the church, the gatherings of the church, the studies of the church, but as I mentioned last week in our members meeting, of just relating to people in the church. Call up those who are are homebound or call up those who are are lonely. Go visit some senior saints. Again, those who are lonely or those who are going through a difficult time. Start Bible studies. You know, some of you who are at COS, I mean, wow, the, the opportunities abound, Right? And again, we all have to be disciplined. Well, there's so many distractions in this life, but, but what I just want to caution singles that I think singles can waste a lot of time, right? I won't get on my soapboxes about certain things, right? But I mean, they can just waste a lot of time. And, and man, develop godly habits now because Again, you can bring bringing glory to God now. Later, if, if you are going to be married and have kids, you're going to need those godly disciplines. So there's a word here for everybody, for singles, for marrieds. Marriage, and so let me just kind of wrap this up. I hope you see today that marriage is a gift from God. That marriage is a sacred covenant between one man and one woman where they commit to love and serve one another and exclusively share their lives together until death parts them. 
So marriage is a gift from God. I, I keep repeating that intentionally because I think marriage gets a bad rap nowadays. Marriage is good. Marriage is a gift from God. And you can look at the, the studies and show that marriage actually, contrary to what the world says, marriage is actually a, a, a place of, of great joy. Marriage is a gift from God. It's a beautiful relationship meant for our flourishing and to bring glory to God by picturing Christ's relationship to the church. So Abounding Grace Church, let us all honor marriage. Let us celebrate the gift of marriage by cherishing our spouse, by by seeking by God's grace to grow in our marriage, and by speaking well of marriage to our kids and to others. Young people, Again, I've been talking to you a lot today. Know that marriage is a beautiful gift from God. We mess it up because we are sinners. (laughs) But marriage is good. And even if if perhaps you've grown up watching your parents struggle in their marriage, maybe they've struggled to have a happy marriage, don't give up on marriage. Okay? Many of us, grew up in homes with unhealthy marriages, but by God's grace, we have good marriages now. So it is possible with the Lord's help. There will always be challenges, to be sure, in marriage, but when a husband and wife consistently seek the Lord first, then God's spirit and God's word will grow them and help them to love and serve each other as they together follow Christ. So young people believe that marriage is a beautiful gift from God. And again, as you wait for God's timing, seek the Lord with all your heart. Grow in your love for Christ and seek to live for Christ. And as you do, if it's God's will for you to be married, he will make that known to you. But by staying close to the Lord, you will make the right decision. You'll choose the, the, a spouse who loves the Lord. And is committed to making Christ the center of your marriage and family. And one other word that I would just say, and, and I say this recognizing that none of my kids are married yet. So, you know, some of you may think, yeah, it's easy for you to say, right? Talk to us when, when some boys come knocking or, or whatever, right? But I think there's a word here for parents, too. Like, let us encourage our kids in marriage if, if that's where God calls them right? I know it must be the scariest thing to ever (laughs) give your son or daughter to someone else, right? Because that's your most precious, I don't say possession, but you know what I mean. That's your most precious person that you've poured so much into. But I wonder sometimes, again, in our day and age, if even Christian parents can't be kind of affected by the world and think, well, no, you've got you know, to go get your PhD first before you can get married. And you've got to you know, do this and this and this. And it's like, hmm, do you really? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there's wisdom. You've got to be able to support yourself. You, and, and again, you've got to be both committed Christians who are going to keep Christ at the center of your life. But we're never ready for marriage, right? I mean, it's a lifelong process of growing, right? And so I just want to make sure and, and that, you know, as parents, we've got to trust the Lord too, right? So for what that's worth. Let's celebrate and honor marriage as a blessing from God. But then, last word here. On the other hand, let's be careful that we don't hold up marriage as some idol or that we don't treat singles as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Human marriage is temporary. It's supposed to be a lifelong commitment, but it's temporary. There's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in the new heavens and new earth. Human marriage, right? Human marriage is temporary. Unmarried, as we've been reminded today, unmarried believers have a unique opportunity to serve the Lord generously, free from responsibilities of marriage and parenting. So, so let us... Praise God for for those to whom he calls for that, in that situation. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether single, married, divorced, or remarried, 
Let us all continue to cling to Christ alone for our salvation and let us devote ourselves to to growing in the Lord, to, to knowing Christ and to making him known through our relationships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace that abounds to us in your spirit again that comes and brings your word and I pray that um, you will just uh, accomplish all that you want choose to today Lord through your word help us to grow in our understanding of marriage and I know I really belabored some of these points today but we see that marriage just kind of eroding from our society today and what an opportunity we have to, to uh, be salt and light to this world and to try to reflect what you have, the way you have designed um, marriage to be the blessing that it is. And so I pray for all of us, Lord, whatever situation we find ourselves in. I pray for those who are married. Lord, please help us. We, we desperately need your, your grace. We know we fall short daily of, of serving and loving each other the way we are, are supposed to. So please help us to um, depend on you and cling to you and keep, keep striving to grow. And I pray for our s- singles, Lord, that you will um, bless them and that you will help them to find, um, to seek you first. May we all find our joy and ultimate hope in you and then you will guide them um, through whatever plans you have for them. And together, may we be a church that just serves you as the family of God, different people in different stages of life, in different situations, but all together making disciples and, and rejoicing in the Lord. So please, please uh, bless us and help us, Lord. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the work of Christ today. If there are any, Lord, who here today who don't know Jesus as their Savior, even as we talked about the forgiveness of sins and things, Lord, may they be drawn to Christ. May you show them that there is mercy and forgiveness uh, at the cross of, of Jesus. Show them their sin and then give them faith to call out to, to Jesus and embrace him as Lord and Savior, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we will close with a a song of praise.